On this spectacular episode of StarPod Log, we consider the contents of StarLog magazine from 1982 in issues 63 and 64. Mike Faber, Mary Ogle, and Mike Gordon consider season 19 of Doctor Who. Lou, Rich, and Max discuss The Beastmaster. New York Pete and Tipsy Toaster talk about the science fiction and fantasy soundtracks of the era. Plus, E.T. Poltergeist. The TV shows of 1982. And more on this episode of... Starpod Law. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hoorah, tally-ho. Hey, my little Georgia Peach. Hey, Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and love classic science fiction and retro pop culture. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what fandom was like years ago. But we leave the Star Trek-related content to our other podcast, StarPod Trek. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine. If you would like to comment on a subject or give us feedback, please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows? We might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. We are on tour. You can meet us at the following events and conventions. We will be presenting at Con Castabras, the Doctor Who convention, on June 10th and 11th in Huntsville, Alabama. Wow, we are super excited to go to this convention. It's actually going to be the last Con K ever, because the showrunners are retiring. And I'm never, I've never been to this one, so I'm real excited about it. Um, and it's mainly a Doctor Who convention. But it does have some other media as well. We'll be presenting a panel on uh, time travel on Star Trek. And I'll be involved in a panel regarding the history of James Bond. So it has a lot to do, not just Doctor Who. It's going to be great going back to Rocket City. And once again, we have been invited back to present panels as professional guests at DragonCon. In Atlanta, Georgia, on Labor Day weekend. I mean, what else can we say about DragonCon that we haven't said before? It's like a huge party for five days. (laughs) We can't wait to see all our listeners at DragonCon. And if you're into video games, pinball, comic books, cosplay... Definitely want to check out Music City Multicon October 27th through 29th in Lebanon, Tennessee. It has a little bit of everything, but the definite focus is video games. They have a huge arcade where you can just go and play video games all day. And it's really fun to see all the all the games that you you can remember from the 80s that everyone used to play. Starlog Magazine, issue number 63, cover date October 1982. Well, this issue has special meaning to me because this is actually the very first Starlog that I ever saw in my life. I know that you were familiar with Starlog in the early days. Yeah, I think I um, 
was first introduced to Starlog around issue 16 or so. Well, this kid in my class, Matthew Elliott, he brought this magazine in. And you gotta figure, during this time period, E.T. was in People magazine, mass market publications that you'd see at the grocery store while you're waiting in line. He showed me this magazine that talked about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, E.T., The Beastmaster. It, it, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. A whole magazine filled with things that I cared about? This changed my life. I'd be searching for Starlog continuously from this point forward. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. Ranting and Ratings. Tim Mitchell from Post Falls, Idaho. I am 14 and sick and tired of the movie rating system. Starlog gets the guy so worked up about new films that he can't wait to see it. Then the movie rating system slaps a big R on the film. I'm talking about films like Outland, The Thing, Blade Runner, and Conan. I was really looking forward to seeing those films. Starlog really helped me. Then they get an R. That can really depress a young sci-fi fan. I wish the system was different. It sure is the pits. But we were of that age group that felt this pain to a degree. Yeah, a lot of um, teenagers read Starlog, and so it's like, yeah, and you don't realize when you're reading it that you can't see the movie. But you had an older brother, so that wasn't so much of an issue with you. Um, Yeah, my older brother took me to some R-rated movies, and my parents knew it. They didn't seem to mind. <laughs> Log Entries, Latest News in the Worlds of Science Fiction and Fact. Moore returns as 007. Roger Moore is back in the shoulder holster again as James Bond in the 13th 007 epic, Octopussy. Moore signed in mid-July after a lengthy period of negotiations for his sixth appearance since he took over the role from Sean Connery. This is my favorite James Bond, the one I grew up with. You mean Roger Moore, right? Not the movie, okay. <laughs> but but yeah, Octopussy was great, and, and I loved Roger Moore. He was also my first Bond. The action involves a futuristic jet aircraft, and there will no doubt be high-speed car chases to please most rubber burners. The budget is an estimated at $30 million. Yeah, great follow-up, too, for your eyes only. And even at that time, there was always talk about who is going to be the next James Bond. Because Roger Moore did six movies, there was a lifespan to how long an actor could be Bond. And and he did it for so long. And, and you know, I didn't even realize then that he's actually older than Sean Connery. Inside E.T. What makes Hollywood's most popular alien visitor tick? Director Steven Spielberg and effects wizard Carlo Rambaldi tell all, sort of. Uh, what was your first experience with E.T.? I saw it with a group of people, and, you know, I just knew I wanted to see it because it was a Steven Spielberg movie, and I knew it was about an alien from outer space, but I didn't know, like, just how good it would be and how much of a, a tearjerker it would be. Oh, I saw it with my family, and, and you got to figure, my family at this point... We were not going to movies 
regularly, and we were not going to first-run theaters. We were going to the 99-cent neighborhood theaters for the most part. But this is a movie my whole family went to see because, again, Steven Spielberg, by this point, he was right up there name-wise with George Lucas. People knew that you are going to get something exciting out of Steven Spielberg. And everyone was talking about it. Like, you could, you could not go anywhere and not hear people talk about E.T. Every age group, every demographic, everyone loved E.T. In high school, I had some E.T. stickers, and I put them on my notebook that I took to school. And, and well, let's just say they, they got noticed. I mean, yeah, everybody knew what it was. Oh, you like E.T. Yeah, yeah, you got the stickers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a true phenomenon. And one of the focus of this article, it talks about, how important the animatronics of E.T. was. Because you got to figure E.T. was a combination of a person, a little person that was inside of an E.T. that was used for distant scenes where E.T. would be wobbling. But then there were close-up scenes where there were animatronics, essentially a puppet. And they did an incredible job with the puppetry here. Yeah, it, it looked real. It looked like um, a creature that was actually moving and talking. So yeah, they did a good job, and and we also know later when they did the uh, the remake, the the when they re reanimated it, that there were some original scenes that weren't as good, and those got cut out of the original movie because Spielberg really cared about it and wanted it to look real. So what we saw in the original release um, all looked very real. It's interesting too, is that Steven Spielberg allowed the puppeteers to have some freedom, even though that. Things weren't in the script necessarily. He reviewed actions, and if it made sense, he would keep it there. For example, the article notes that one scene, E.T.'s eating, and the puppet still had food on its mouth, and the puppeteer underneath was watching from a camera to what what Steven Spielberg, the director, was seeing, and she took the finger of E.T. and started wiping her mouth with that finger. Steven Spielberg thought about it. First, he was going to say, cut, stop it. You got all junk on the mouth. Let's wipe it off. But he said, wait a second. That is what a human would do. This adds some realism. If you had food on your mouth, you'd wipe it off. So it's kind of curiosity when, when you have something that could be a flub that actually works to adding the character being more of a real person that we care about. That That's cool. That's a very interesting scene. Um, and, and, of course, the... Um the Reese's Pieces in the movie, that was so cool, too. Do you remember every kid wanted to eat Reese's Pieces at yeah. that point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but even, I mean, watching E.T. pick up the mm -hmm. pieces, like, oh, he likes candy like I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember Steven Spielberg saying that um, E.T. and, well, and you know how E.T. and Poltergeist were both released the same year, but he made Poltergeist from his nightmares, and he made E.T. from his dreams. Interesting that he was able to produce two big movies in one year. You just don't see that now. This was an era when directors were allowed to have some control, where the movie studios weren't in over-manipulation mode with the audiences. I like the fact that the article talks about how they spent so much time on the animatronics with the eyes and also the cameras focusing in on the eyes because the eyes were going to emote emotion. And you get a lot of that out of E.T. There were 10 points of movement, movement on the face alone. And you got to figure, for that time period, that's a lot. Because previously, 
The article talks about how King Kong, which, which a popular movie just a few years earlier, 1976, how it was very difficult for the team to make King Kong emote because it had less facial movements. So the more facial movements you have, the more you can feel for the creature. Steven Spielberg said that he averaged 15 takes for each time that he was on E.T. So the idea of spending a lot of time and trying to recreate as at these scenes as many times and choosing the best of them shows a ton of dedication and patience, not only on the staff that was involved in creating this creature, but also on the actors involved on the set. So have you heard that E.T. was another interpretation of of, of Jesus Christ and, and the movie, um, was it The Day the Earth Stood Still? Oh, totally. About, about someone who comes Everyone and, was talking yeah. about it at the time. About Jesus Christ, the way he could, he could heal. He had this healing power, and he died and came back to life. Exactly. Came from above and at the end went back. Yes. There are strong parallels there. And I know in college, the, like the college was, like they sponsored a movie night where we watched this movie on video. And I, and I had one friend there who, who had never seen it yet. And somehow she had heard something. She said, am I going to cry? And he said, we said, yeah. So, so she just brought a bunch of Kleenex with her so she could have it when she starts crying. Well, in our recent review of all movies from 1982, I was still tearing up. I mean, I ain't all out cry like I did when I was a kid. But this movie truly does stand the test of time. It does. It's, it's still... I mean, you look at it, it's, it's about a family and what happens to them. It's like, it's like something that you still feel could happen now. And they did a wonderful job creating a bond between Ellie and E.T. And, and they had the little Star Wars action figures, too. Just mention that. <laughs> yeah. you know. that, that and that was Stephen's reference to his friend George Lucas, giving him homage. Yes, and the, the Yoda uh, Halloween costume. That's right, that's right. And years later... George would have E.T. in one of his Star Wars movies. So it's kind of funny to, to see these Easter eggs, how these two directors have respect for each other's creations. Steven Spielberg is quoted here by saying, When Elliot and E.T. embraced in the film's finale, the entire crew was crying. They were sobbing, not only on the first take, but all the takes. They were crying in full view of E.T. and how E.T. was being manipulated. And Carlo Rambaldi said, For me, it was impossible to cry. I see E.T. and I know everything inside. See, I think that's two different takes that are interesting. Because I could see where Rambaldi was realizing it's just a puppet. But others in the crew were totally embraced in the characterization. Yeah, everyone else kind of saw it the way we did, like as an audience, seeing it from the front and not knowing what all is behind it. Yeah, E.T., one of the, I think one of the most underrated science fiction movies of all time. You hardly see this in a list of sci-fi masterpieces. But for those of us who grew up watching it, definitely want to consider it in that pantheon. He'd always been told that his ability with animals was uncommon. He sees through their eyes. They see through his. They know his thoughts. I know his thoughts. They're disgusting. The disgusting things that Lou Malagrana does with beasts cannot be spoken of in this podcast. So join us as we drain your blood, damage your brain with mysterious green liquid, and leeches. 
I am Dar. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Durant. Freaking Dar. <laughs> and I am Max. Not the one that's going to take you to the temple. Maybe. And I am just an Italian, Lou Malagrana, in a tracksuit and a friggin' baseball cap. Welcome to this edition of Starbot Logs, the Beastmaster. HBO, you know what HBO stands for, don't you? Hey, Beastmaster's on. <laughs> nice. How many times did that run? That was like, I swear to God, if, if HBO had like fourteen out, fourteen episodes, fourteen shows a day, it was like on like sixteen of them. I mean, it was like crazy. It was always on. It never always. stopped. Never stopped. All of them. Yeah. Yeah, that was some. Uh, that's uh, pretty. That's pretty wild. You know, I, I I don't think I remember it being on HBO that much, but uh, I do remember watching it a lot anyway because so I probably would have enjoyed it. I when I was when I was watching, I remember ha- watching it a lot on the VHS. You know, we get together and and like that was one of the standards. You know, that along with some of the other classic movies from the time. You know, star, you've all of course all the Star Wars stuff, Last Starfighter. Sword and the Sorcerer, Conan, and got to have Beastmaster on there. And mostly because Tanya Roberts was in it. It was awesome. I could, I'll tell you yeah. a quick story before you get too involved. So, because I've been like holding this to say it. So, I went to a chiller theater show. So, it had to be 2003 because Amanda was five. We get in line. Tanya Roberts is there. She was probably, I don't know how old she was. Maybe fifties. I'm not sure, but she still look smoking great. hot. Yeah, still smoking hot. So I get there with my buddy. He wants her autograph. I'm like, okay. And I have my daughter. She was five, so she's cute. And she's in my arms. And as soon as we walked up, she gets out from behind the table and says, "Oh my god, she's so cute. Can I hold her?" Uh, sure. Okay. Go ahead. You know, take her. And that was about it. that. My daughter at that time got held by more celebrities than I've ever spoken to in my life. And yet she has no idea who any of them were. She was too young, but that's about as close as I ever got to being anywhere near the Beastmaster. <laughs> I mean, that's even better than taking a puppy to the park, right? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Little kids weren't great for that with women. They really did. I mean, <laughs> but that was about it. <laughs> that's the thing with Beastmaster. They, they talk about this. They, they're interviewing the, the producer of, of the movie. And, um, it's from that great period in the eighties when fantasy was a subgenre kind of is now again with, with game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, but not like there were so many of these sort of I like then yeah. low rent fantasy movies like Conan, the barbarian Beastmaster, sword and the sorcerer. Red Sonya. Um, I, I remember the one that we really liked a lot was Red the Sonya, Darker, yeah. Cause that just had tons of nudity in it. Like as kids, we'd always be renting that at the, at the, at the video store. We'd be like, you gotta get Deathstalker. But I think he left out Mac and me. Didn't you leave out Mac and me? Mac and me. You rip off. The thing that looks. Oh yeah, it looks like he's got a belly button for a mouth. Yeah, that one. But Beastmaster, like like all the the films we've sort of been discussing recently, it just has a massive cult following over the years. I don't know how successful it was when it came out. I guess it must have done all right, but. It's it's huge now. Like people revere that movie; they love it. So it's got like a fantastic cast too. Like you talked about, like T- Tanya Roberts, Mark Singer, which is it, Rip interesting. Torn. We talked about Rip Torn. I love Rip Torn. Rip Torn is amazing in everything right? he's in. And wait, and, and who does he play in this movie? Rip Torn plays. Uh, plays oh yeah, Max. He plays Max, and then of course John yeah. Amos plays Seth. 
<laughs> Wasn't there a little kid that he traveled around with or like a <clears throat> teenager or something that was by his side? I'm trying to remember. I, I might be having it mixed up with another. It's been so long since I saw it. Yeah, but you were talking about, well, well, this movie came out, you know, August 16th, 1982. And uh, I'm looking at, I just, you happened to mention it, so I thought I'd just look it up. The budget on it was $9 million, and the box office was $14.1 million. So I would say even for that time, probably not what they would consider a massive success. Right. Um, still, you know, to make, you know, to spend nine to get 14, you know, sure it's yeah, five million dollars by the time you split the whole time. You'd be good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Tanya Roberts is in this movie. Yeah, the ex, yes, uh, yeah. what, Charlie's Angels or think and whatever else she was in and it, it's directed by don coscarelli who is the guy that directed phantasm and did all the phantasm movies which i i love i'm a huge that was the kind of interesting thing i found out about this article is i'm a huge horror fan and when they're interviewing the um the producer here he talks more about like all the horror movies he likes and what horror movies he thinks is great and he produced this horror film called evil speak and if you have never seen the film Evil Speak, it's a film with Clint Howard, Ron Howard's younger brother. Oh no, the one that looks yeah. like he's deformed. Yeah, one? the, the yeah. one, the one that, yeah. the one that played uh, on Star Trek. You know, like oh, he's he's, 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 he's also in like know, he's, he's one of some space movies working in the I don't know, it was Apollo or something where he's like in the NASA center, like controlling the rocket. I'm like, he just looks like he needs some surgery or something. I don't know. Well, you know, he, he's the he's the one on Star he's the one in Star Trek. He's the little kid on the original Star Trek with the the, the keeper figure is, is from You're shitting movie. me. That's that's Ron, him, that's, that's that little Clint kid. Howard. Yeah. Yeah, but they 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 um Holy they dub his shit, voice. I would have never figured that out. Yeah. No and freaking he, way. Yeah. And he was oh also on Gentle right. Ben. He was the kid on Gentle Ben. I don't know if you oh remember watching gosh. that show. Oh my gosh! Wow, that's but, crazy. But he's he's in this movie called Evil Speak. That the the producer of it's funny they're interviewing him about Beastmaster, and he's really pushing this movie Evil Speak in the whole article. Like he's like, oh, you got to see this Evil Speak movie that I produced. Probably because Coscarelli was a big horror director too, so he, they see seemed to have more of a a horror bent. And I, I I haven't seen Beastmaster in a while, but that kind of has some horror in it. There's a lot of like creatures in there and, and things along those lines that's aren't there. Sword and sorcery. It's, sword of the sorcerer was great that was a that was a great movie that's yeah that was a great movie but i just looked at this i just looked at something here so i don't know if i'm assuming you guys know this because i didn't so it said that the original film spawned two sequels as yeah, well as right. a syndicated television series that chronicled the further adventures of what's his name again max what's the guy's name dar <laughs> freaking yeah. dar I can't say more than one syllable, yeah. so I'll just be Dar. It sounds like a pirate name. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these movies. I mean, these, you know, these guys have these one-syllable names. You know, I, you know, it's just uh, one or two. You know, because you could never have three because that'd be a foreign film, right? But, uh, but this, you know, but this one, I mean, I, the premise of the movie is is really interesting, and it's based on a 1959 book uh, called The Beastmaster, but it's. Uh, you know, you, you got this guy who can see, you know, if an eagle is flying, he can, he can, he has the sight of that eagle and, you know, communicates that way and has to fight, uh, 
you know, it, it's, it's, it, but the, the, the part where it makes it hard, I mean, it's an interesting story. Uh, the scenery in it is great. It, for me, I just had a, I just had a little bit of hard time, like you guys were talking about, you know, seeing, you know, Mark Singer, who, I mean, he wasn't a out of shape guy, you know, it's not like I, me playing the Beastmaster or something like that, but he did seem, you know, especially after he watched Conan and some of these other ones where you see these big Viking looking dudes, you know, really buff and, you know, he's just not. He's a pretty boy in it. He's a pretty he, boy. he was, you know. I mean, and I, and I guess that's how we got Tanya Roberts. But wasn't he in like a? I mean, Rich, wasn't he in like a million films? Or, or yeah, or well, no? well they, mentioned, they mentioned they mentioned here like they, they they mentioned that they found him here that he was discovered, but he was on an episode of Pl- the Planet of the Apes TV series, one of my favorite yes. episodes, The Gladiator. Wasn't he the son? Of the guy yeah, that was like the, wrestling or something, yeah. or that were fighting or pr- yep. gladiators. It's, it's called the gladiators. Yep. And he and was he's, really he's, young. Yes. Yeah, he's William Smith's son on that. Okay. And okay. and so they they act like he never acted before in this article, but he was in tons. And they always meant, they mentioned that he was in a, a TV movie where he played a, um, a a male stripper for ladies only or something. I, like I don't really know if I'd call that acting, Rich. Maybe he really didn't act before Big Son, but he's doing that. Well, and well, of course, of one things. of the greatest sci-fi series of all time, V. Like he was V. Yes, I love. Yeah. I was just gonna say you had to mention that he was he was in V. Tanya <laughs> Roberts. Did we mention her? Yeah, she's in this movie. Um, she was smoking. But, they gave her a good yeah. name too, Kiri. It's a great Kiri. name. Kiri, Kiri and Dar. That was something I always thought Rich could do. I thought Rich could see through animals' eyes or something like that. I thought that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he can. Yes, it was the mask, so he could see through other animals' eyes. Now he's cool. he's got the. I don't I don't know about all that, but he can he can speak in other people's <laughs> tongues. Doctor Duran is also Doctor Doolittle. Is that what you're saying? That's right. If I could talk to the animals, learn their languages. No, that's the wrong Beastmaster. Chatter with a chimp and chimpanzee. <laughs> well, I swear, for the Beastmaster, I remember this scene where I think he's like standing and he's looking in the. The falcon or the hawk is like flying right. around, and he's looking through his eyes, and they had that really kind of like that, that like blurry around the edge camera where it was in right, the, right. And then when they film Mark Singer, he has to like wipe his eyes because there's like tears from him like staring through the eagle's <laughs> eyes or something. That's all I remember. I'm like he's such a pretty boy. How's this guy like out crushing enemies? I'm like, you know, whatever. He was definitely oiled he's up using his... too. Like right, like he was always baby oiled up when they would. Oh on yeah. The <laughs> Listen well, he's using his cunning, you know, it's, uh, you know, and, and that scene you were just talking about, I mean, that, um, that kind of cinematography has been used in other movies as well oh, yeah. with oh, the, yeah. you know, with the being able to see through the eyes of the, of an animal. Oh, I'll bet the guy who invented that thought he came up with something real special that they probably had like 800 movies that can we implement this into our movie? Well, what I found great in the article is they talk about how they had to build this huge temple and and all these pyramids and stuff like that. Like nowadays, they just throw these people on a soundstage with a green screen behind them, you know, to be CGI'd. It's like, that's the thing that's missing from movies. You know, I don't want to be that old guy who's like, in my day, but it's like, at least it had... It was real, right? Like you can wait, see wait a minute, wait a minute. CGI. When you went to the movies as kids, did you have to share one shoe between you and your twelve brothers and sisters <laughs> to, walk the, to walk in the snow? Yeah, no, that's uphill cool. in a in a in the snow. It was uphill both ways, and <laughs> he had a rock to play with. But, yeah, but damn no, glad to have it. 
that Beastmaster, I can tell you, like, when we, Beastmaster was 80, we say 82, right? So I had just yeah. kind of got back to the U.S. And we just kind of like, my parents had just got divorced. And I remember sitting in front of that little 13-inch black and white TV with the cable box with the wire. And you'd have to push the button. And so, I mean, to get really old. But that movie was on so much. I can't even tell you how many times I watched it. I really can't. I, I can't even yep. tell you how many times I watched it. Uh, anybody, that mentioned, anybody that knows Beastmaster has always... I don't think I know anybody that actually saw it in the theater. Everybody's like, I saw it on HBO a yeah. hundred times when I was a kid. <laughs> Did they even put it in the theater? No, just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, for me, it was VHS. And yes, yeah. and we did uh, have to be kind and rewind, and we rewound <laughs> it and watched it over and over and over. You know? It's so funny. If anybody here is under the age of, what, 40, I guess, they're like, what the hell are they talking about? Be kind and rewind. What the hell is that? You know, <laughs> we're going to charge you a 50 cent fee for not rewinding, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, well, no, I mean, that movie was very iconic. What I thought was funny in the article is they mentioned uh, that, you know, they're talking to the, the producer and he says, oh, you know, I got, I got a great cinematographer, John Alcott. He was the cinematographer for, for Kubrick for The Shining and Barry Lyndon. And then later on in the article that they're, they're talking to him and they ask him, you know, well, what what horror movies do you like? He's like, oh, I like The Exorcist and I like The Omen. That's really good. Uh, but you know what horror movie I don't like? I don't like The Shining. The Shining was a bad horror movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's the guy who's using it for the cinematography. Yeah, isn't that the guy that's working on your movie that's doing the cinematography? Oh. I mean, it, it, it's probably different reasons why he didn't like the film, but I thought that was sure. pretty funny. Well, cinematography funny. was great, but I hated the movie. I hated the movie, you know. Yeah. But yeah, but this, you know, I mean, for, for 1982, I mean, this this was, I mean, hitting, like you were talking about, hitting the, the sweet spot because Conan was out, you know, Conan the Barbarian the same year, um, you know, so many, so many great movies. And what was, what else did I see here? Hold on, I'm looking through here. Secret of the Nim, not necessarily, but but in that, that fantasy. Like, so in the Beastmaster, like, what was his, I can't even think, like, what was his most difficult challenge? I mean, like well, it was the, when he looked clean, the cleaning floor. up after his panther. I was gonna say, like, what Please was his panther? Like, Whoa! What were his big fights and stuff? Like, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't slaying any hydras or smashing mirrors or. I mean, he was just like I don't know, well, I don't just know, the I, evil, just the evil army guys of of Max. Right. Or, I like, suppose you know. I mean, he into that role because he did. He was an actor, didn't cost a lot, or did he know somebody, or was he just like maybe like. uh Oh, we got this pretty boy we can put in here. We'll oil him up and give him a big sword and a loincloth. That'll work real well. We'll get some well, That's the way they did a lot well, of those fantasy films back then. Yeah, it was just sure. get, get a halfway sure, decent it, looking it, dude, like a surfer dude, throw him in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's gotta, true, put though. a guy well, in a monster mask. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Right, I mean, the, the attraction to a movie like that would probably be more, I would think with the target audience would be more guys than, than women, but you know, you put a, you know, you put that, you put the good-looking guy in there for the uh, eye candy to bring the, bring the, the female gender in. I, I mean, yeah, I, because otherwise, I think, you know, I would think they would, they would have, they would have gone with a grittier-looking actor. Right. I would think, uh, you know, a right. bigger, maybe a bigger guy. You know who would have been a good Beastmaster? Steve Who's that? Reeves. Steve Reeves. <laughs> I I was I was gonna say Raymond Burr. Oh, Raymond Burr. Oh my god! It's no hey, Alibaba defeated, and the Seven Sarasins. He defeated. Oh. <laughs> it's True. a tough movie to find right now, too. Actually, if you're trying it's to find a copy on, uh, of it, on 
I believe Vinegar Syndrome or Severn has it out on like a really deluxe Blu-ray, which is uh, supposed to have a lot of oh, really? features. Yeah. I was like searching while we were doing this, see what kind of stuff was on that. They did have a good poster for it, though. The poster was good. The eye with the yeah, very almost like Frank Frazetta style artwork. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was pretty good. It reminds me of the old, um, those old, what the guy's name was that guy named Boris Vallejo, whatever his name was, the guy that used to yeah, do Vallejo or, or Frank Frazetta. Yeah. yeah, like those yeah. those old paperbacks. Yeah. Looks like one of the paperback novels you'd see, like one of the Ace paperbacks from the, in the science fiction section or yeah, something like that. Exactly, exactly. I am the beast Max. Master. You had a story you were telling us about you and you and your friends when you would watch. Uh, Beastmaster, that there's a certain scene in there, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there. There are lots of scenes in there. You know, we the said. Uh, yeah. Well, you could. You could. I think it was a. It was a scene with uh, Mark Singer and uh, obviously Tanya Roberts, who I, as you mentioned, uh, maybe you may have noticed if you watched the movie, she's smoking hot in this movie. And I think uh, there was a point where I think Mark Singer also noticed that she was. Uh, smoking hot and was um, maybe a little aroused. Um, well, yeah, we were sitting, <laughs> yeah, because that was it was something that we he was not mastering his loincloths. I just say he didn't master his that day. <laughs> you know, no, it was funny because we used, like I said, we used to get together and watch VHS movies, and um, a lot of times when you know we we get them, you know, a lot. So it was a lot of those '80s movies. We weren't really too terribly opposed to piracy or whatever, but uh, we'd take and hook VCR to VCR to VCR, and somebody'd have the original, and we'd play it and record it so that everybody had a copy of it uh, that wanted one. And so I had a lot of tapes that had, you know, that we recorded that way, and you know, we'd do them on different speeds so that you know they would be copies of copies, and they were a little grainy, but it was something to watch when you're in Greece. But uh, you know, you get to get a bunch of guys, you know, together, you know and drinking and playing puzzles and watching movies and recording movies. And somebody pointed that out and you can't unsee that after you see it once. It's like, Hey Mark, it's not polite to point. (laughs) I am Dr. Durant also known as Rich Hurley. You can find me on Dr. Durant Sanctum on YouTube and Facebook at Dr. Durant Sanctum. I am Max Overnighter, storyteller, contributor, and all-around goof on the Facebook group, Migo Like. I'm also around some of these other chat groups, podcasts. And um, so, hey, if you happen to see me lurking in your site, feel free to stop by, say hi. And I am Lou Melagrana, not the Beastmaster. And definitely not pointing at Tanya Roberts at this point. But uh, you can find me on the Facebook group, Migo Like, or on YouTube, My Migo Like, doing all kinds of fun stuff. Rich, would you please, please stop looking through the eyes of the yak and pay attention to what we're doing here? I <laughs> say we're trying to finish this podcast and you're looking through the yak. What could be so interesting that that yak is showing you? Hey, everybody, this is Mark McRae, and I'm the author of The Best Saturdays of Our Lives. When I want to hear a really, really cool discussion about my favorite cartoons, I listen to Star Pod Log. Hey, let's talk about some of our favorite TV shows that were airing in 1982. We'd have to begin by speaking of some of the cartoons that first aired in this epic year. Gilligan's Planet. So, yeah, it was still the days of Saturday morning cartoons, 
And yes, so this cartoon based on Gilligan's Island, which I loved. <laughs> Gilligan's Planet was kind of, it, it was a neat takeoff. Um, wh- what's really noticeable is they changed Ginger. They, they gave her white hair instead of red hair. Cartoons are known for making these goofy adaptions sometimes. And were you still eating cereal while you're ha- watching Saturday morning cartoons at this point? Yes, I was. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that is, that is something that is lost in time, watching Saturday morning cartoons and eating cereal. The Incredible Hulk cartoon aired that year, which I was a huge fan of. Loved it. I still had my Mego Two Mego Incredible Hulk dolls, the 8-inch one and the 12-inch one. And I don't know if exactly at this point I was still playing with them, but I would still have them around. Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Journey, and the Fonz Hour. That was weird. So I, I remember very little of that. It probably came out at a time when I was watching something else. It was very short-lived. That's kind of a, a hard transition. But I do remember having Fonzie pillowcases. And because of the huge success of the video game, the Pac-Man cartoon was available. And the cartoon had nothing to do with the video game. Well, yeah, Pac-Man was this guy with feet and he talked and everything. (laughs) And a family. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, you remember they had Pac-Man cereal, too, at some point. Yeah. Well, we had it. Sure, sure. Yeah, Pac-Man fever was running wild in 1982. When it comes to live-action shows, remember Knight Rider? That debuted in 1982. Yeah, that was a fun show. My mom loved David Hasselhoff. Really? She part German? <laughs> no. <laughs> you remember years later, he was like the number one actor in Germany because Knight Rider was the number one rerun show there. And oh, Baywatch was the number one news show. Yeah, yeah. They, they loved him over there. How about Square Pegs? Were you a fan of that show? I watched it some because it had Merritt Buttrick from Star Trek. <laughs> How about Newhart? Newhart? Yeah, I remember that. I loved Bob Newhart. That was a long-running show. William Shatner, the hardest working man in show business. He was producing TV commercials in 1982. He starred in The Wrath of Khan and had his own TV series, T.J. Hooker. Yeah, T.J. Hooker was a good show, too. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I mean, William Shatner did great on it, and I also liked um, Heather Locklear and, and Adrian Zemed back then. Okay, this is a show my brother and I were so excited to watch. It used to be called Sneak Previews when it was on PBS, but they changed the name when it went to network television to At The Movies. It was, we called it just Siskel and Ebert. Yeah, I remember that. So, so the, the way I remember it, though, Sneak Previews actually stayed on, but they but it had different hosts, right? Um, Siskel and Ebert went on to do their own show at the movies where, where sneak previews just stayed and had these other two people. I think that they, they had a man and a woman, I remember. Don't like, like nobody even And nobody knows cared, them. right? Yeah. They just want yeah. to watch Siskel and Ebert, right? Yeah, right. Alright, now did you listen to what they said, their commentary, and really take it to heart? Um, well, well, I mean, I listened to their opinions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I thought they were good. As far I, I as did like, too, I liked it, and they had counterpoints. Yeah, and it was, it was when they did at the movies is that, that they started doing the thumbs up or thumbs down. Before that, it was just yes or no. And today, that is an absolute standard when you have people commentating uh, about whether it be movies, TV, video games, having what's your view, what's my view, thumbs up or thumbs down. Yes, it it was it was original, so and it's something that stuck. Yeah, and people still remember Siskel and Ebert. How about Family Ties? Loved Family Ties. 
And and now we know the the little boy on the show became a uh, Worf's son for about one episode, I think. <laughs> and Michael J. Fox went on to Back to the Future. It's amazing some of these careers these yeah. sitcom stars had. And he already he already had it big on on this show. Mm-hmm. Yes. The Powers of Matthew Starr. Short-lived sci-fi show. Yeah, yeah, another great show. Silver Spoons. Oh yeah, with with Erin Gray. This was the show she got after Buck Rogers, and um, yeah, I loved watching Silver Spoons. I remember my brother watched a lot of sitcoms, and there was this uh, scenes of what's the kid's name that was in it? Ricky Schroeder. He had an arc. He had arcade games in his house. Like to me, that was the the epitome of wealth. Yeah, because it, he had a millionaire father. So, yeah, all all of these great things, living in the mansion and everything. Voyagers? I don't remember much about that. It was about time travelers, right? Super short-lived sci-fi show, yep. Late Night with David Letterman started in 1982. You want to talk about a long-running show, that was one. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I watched it sometimes, but it was, like they call it late night. Yeah, it was on. that was on like at 1230 at night, so I wasn't always up to watch it. But yeah, sometimes I watch it if they had someone I wanted to see, like Harrison Ford. Cheers? Yeah, Cheers was a great show. I remember that. And, you know, even before Kirstie Alley joined, it was it was on for a long time. You know, I went on the David Letterman show years ago in the 90s with my parents. Oh, yeah, you were in the audience, right? Yeah, You yeah. said that. Yeah, yeah, Bruce Springsteen was the guest. Oh, that's neat. It's kind of crazy when you go there, though. They give you a whole bunch of rules, like things you can do, things you can't do. It's like it's an all-day event just recording a one-hour episode. A lot to it. What would you think about going to Cheers in Boston? Oh, yeah, we went to the the restaurant in Boston. Yeah. And it looks nothing like the show. The show (laughs) is a set. Yeah, yeah, but it it was fun. I mean, just to go there and say we went there, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the the same sign, Cheers, Mm -hmm. yeah. I used to love this show called Starcade. It actually was kids competing playing arcade video games. And I was thinking to myself, boy, I wish I could be on a show like that. I would love to competitively play video games. Fame? Yeah, I used to love Fame. And um and I saw the TV series before I saw the movie. But yeah, you know, musicals, you know, dancing especially, that was that was my thing back then. And yeah, and I thought it was a great show. Someone who we would never guess that would portray James Bond, Remington Steele, played by... Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, Remington Steele was a neat show, too. That was pretty good. Fraggle Rock. I was a big Fraggle Rock fan. I didn't really watch that. Wasn't that one on HBO? It was. Oh, okay. Total HBO show. And one of my favorite shows that debuted in 1982, Ripley's Believe It or Not, hosted by Jack Palace. Yeah, that show was neat, too. <laughs> Watching Jack Palance was fun just because of who he is. And and he does those expressions and the way he, he looks evil, but, but trying to do it like, like a mysterious guy on the show. <laughs> See, I used to read, my grandfather used to get these books. They were essentially comics, but they were paperback novels. And they were Ripley's Believe It or Not. And I would read them all the time when I would as at his house. And so to have a TV show that brought these little tales to life i loved it so much now other shows that were airing during that time included dallas and of course you know i watched dallas yeah that that was just that was just a fun show how about dynasty 
Did you like and Dynasty Dun- as much as Dallas? Uh, no, not as much. But I did watch Dynasty sometime during the middle years that it was on. Three's Company? I loved Three's Company. Yeah, watched it all the way through. My brother loved Three's Company as well. Love Boat? Yeah, I loved The Love Boat. Didn't you watch that? We did watch The Love Boat, <laughs> and that was one of my cousin's favorite shows. And he was so excited when he found out that Mego made Love Boat action figures. Oh, and you really? wonder why Mego had financial problems. Yeah, why would they make Love Boat action figures? <laughs> it's so crazy <laughs> to think that. I loved any Norman Lear show. The Jeffersons, I thought was incredibly funny. Loved the Jeffersons. I was still watching that. It aired earlier, but in 1982, my family was watching the Jeffersons. The Fall Guy with Lee Majors. Yeah, Are you a Fall I mean, Guy fan? I was, yeah, the Six Million Dollar Man, and now he's got this other show. <laughs> it wasn't really as good as Six Million Dollar Man, but, but it was pretty good. One Day at a Time was airing still in 1982. I didn't watch that. You watched, watched that, it. didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doctor Who, this was the 19th season of Doctor Who. But this year, we got a new Doctor, the fifth Doctor. I was a huge fan of Heart to Heart, and I was watching that continuously. I had a major crush on Stephanie Powers. That's incredible. Uh, that was with Kathy Lee Crosby. Yeah, I used to watch that show. It, it was, was it based John on... Davis? Yeah, Is John that... Davidson, Davidson, right? Davidson. Oh, man, I love that show. That yeah, was a show was... I would go to school and say, like, did you watch this? Did you see this? Couldn't you believe this? So it was based on real people. because Real people was on first, and then this show. Yes, 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 you're right, you're right. And I always viewed real people, that's incredible, and Ripley's Believe It or Not, is kind of sort of the same show. It's just crazy things that people could do or have done. Laverne and Shirley was still on the air in 1982, as well as Happy Days. Like that whole run of Happy Days spinoffs, there were still some active. Yeah, the, these shows went on forever. Happy Days was the one that was really my, my favorite. And I was watching it in reruns, you know, while the new shows were also on. So I watched it like like ten times a week. Dukes of Hazard and The Incredible Hulk were still on. In fact, uh, Incredible Hulk, this is the last season of The Incredible Hulk. But that was our Friday night was was epic because we'd watch Dukes of Hazard and then we watched The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, awesome shows. And I watched them with my parents. And Little House got rebranded. No longer Little House on the Prairie, but it was called Little House A New Beginning because the kids were much older. And so now it was essentially the next generation of Little House. Yeah, I didn't really watch that one, though. I I mean, Little House on the Prairie was great. And so Little House A New Beginning, I just wasn't really into it. Did you watch it? As I got older, I watched every single episode of Little House. I I love everything yeah, with Little original. House. Yeah. yeah, the original and New Beginning. I didn't think it was necessary to rebrand it, A New Beginning, because you knew Little House on the Prairie, even though they got older, it's still... Yeah, you kind of had to because they they moved. Yeah, so it was it was no longer Little House on the Prairie. So I could see thematically why they had to change the name but little house i think is one of the most underrated shows on television has there's only one bad episode out of the entire series but yeah we were watching a lot of awesome shows back in 1982 
We just got back from the Imperial Commissary Collectors Convention in Middle Tennessee. What'd you think about the con, baby? Um, okay. Also known as ICCC, or, or I call it ICCCCCCCC, but anyway, uh, <laughs> it was, um, so it was still a lot of fun. This time they, now, you know how we talked about last year, it was in that small hotel. I mean, f- for the number of people, it was too small. This time they spread out and it was in several buildings. It was at the fairgrounds, right? In Lebanon. And, um, and so they had this, like, like a village that was part of it. But but most people were not really at the village. It, I mean, it it was really too much space this time. The people at the con did not spread out over <clears throat> over all the space that uh, that that the con was actually supposed to take place in this time. But they had some neat things. They had the um, so they had helicopter rides. They had a parade Saturday morning. They had a demolition derby. Uh, some of these things we missed, but but we did get to see some of the celebrities and the panels. We got to see Charlie Cox and Vincent D'Onofrio from Daredevil. And that was both, they, I mean, they were both good. It was just awesome to see them. And uh, John Rhys-Davies from Sliders, and he played Da Vinci on Star Trek. He was great. Indiana Jones. I mean, yes. the guy goes on and on with his credits. Yeah, He, he played Kingpin, so which is kind of funny. He was the first Kingpin on the Incredible Hulk TV movie. When you think about that oh, trial, really? the Incredible okay. Hulk. Okay. So they had two kingpins. <laughs> they had two kingpins there. And they didn't even bill it as such. Like that would have been a cool photo opportunity, kingpin and kingpin. Yeah, they missed that. Um, so we also got to see a wedding there. There was there was uh, yeah. two fans. It was and they were there were Star Wars and Star Trek cosplayers. So that was really cool to see that. Mm-hmm. And they held up lightsabers at the end, <laughs> which was also cool. So, um, and, and they had a, a pretty big vendor's room and mm-hmm. the, um, and you know, all the displays, a lot of stuff that they, that they always have at this con. The, um, they had the speeder bikes where you could, um, have your picture taken. They had all of the, all the scenery there where you could, um, do your own pictures, which was really cool. The fan groups were there and they had, um, like costumes, all, all the different cosplayers were there. So that was neat. Uh, what, what we really didn't like was that the security was just, uh, so adamant there. You, you had to go through security when you, when you first go to the con to get into the building with the vendor's room. But then they also had security again when you go into the, it was, there was a separate, uh, building where they had the panels. And they had people checking your bags. I mean, and the people went through my purse, like, like, like thoroughly, like I've never, like, I know I, I've had to do this at cons before. They open your purse and look in and that's it. These people actually stick their hand in your purse and go through everything. It was, um, it was pretty rough. And the fact that they had to do it over and over every time you go back to the vi- the room with the vendors and, and every time you go back to that building with the, with the uh, panels, they had to check your bags again. So, so that was a hassle. It was a big turnoff. Yeah. It was interesting to say the least. And maybe they didn't have as many people at the con this year. I know at the like in the room in the panel room, they said it seats six hundred or seven hundred fifty people. It, it was never full. Now, now we did hear some people just couldn't find the room, and that was another problem with having it so spread out and having different buildings. Yeah, I think it's just growing pains, growing from the next level, going from a hotel, which is super convenient, to a fairgrounds which everything is spread out. 
Yeah, but it was, I guess it was, it was a nice day though to be walking out and they yeah. had the food trucks outside and they have other buildings. They had a separate building w- with the gaming. They had a separate building for the VIPs. Oh, and they had the air conditioning cranked up in the gaming room, which was so comfortable. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to just walk in there just to relax. Mm-hmm. And and a separate building for the podcasters. Yep. So I, th- I think I had fun there, even though even though there were some there were some inconveniences, but I think it was a fun con. Now, for the first time on television, 18 of the greatest science fiction themes ever assembled in one big album. You'll get the themes from great science fiction movies like Star Trek, Alien, Superman, and One Step Beyond. Also included is Radar, from the day the Earth stood still. Yes, greatest science fiction hits feature themes from the classics of yesterday as well as the blockbusters of today. Remember... This is a special TV offer. Greatest science fiction hits with Neil Norman's Cosmic Orchestra is available now. The album is just $8.99. Eight-track tape or cassette tape, just $9.99. Order yours today. Starlog Magazine, issue number 64, cover date November. 1982. Hey there, folks, and this is Mike Faber from the Earth Station Who podcast. I'm here with my co-hosts, Mr. Mike Gordon and Mary Ogle. Howdy! Hey, everybody! And we are going to be talking about the Doctor Who episode guide for the 1982 season. And 1982 is so frippin' long ago, but I was actually, <laughs> wa- I think I was the only one here who was actually watching Doctor Who at that time. And it was interesting, too, because Doctor Who was already at that point very well established in my heart. I was, you know, watching it daily on PBS in Washington, D.C., and they showed all the Tom Baker episodes, all the yeah. way from Robot to all the way to Legopolis. Did you actually see the 1982 season in 1982? I think I saw it in 1983. What PBS was doing where I grew up is they just, I think they just had the rights to the Tom Baker stuff. And they just kept on, when they got to Legopolis, they started back over a robot, except when they got to pledge drive season. And that's when they said, we've got something special for you. We're introducing you to the new doctor. And that's when during pledge time, then they showed all the 1982 season. So we were about a year behind. And that's not bad for the United States. No, that's pretty good, actually. And they actually had Peter Davison in studio to, you know, introduce it. So it was pretty cool. And he was wearing, of course, his costume and and such. And it was interesting because I didn't know Peter Davison at all. Previously, the only time I had ever seen him, we, you know, as I talk about on my podcast a lot of times, that I grew up as cable TV, as my babysitter, as television, as my babysitter. And so we had early version of Nickelodeon and they had the Tomorrow People on. I don't know. The Tomorrow People was awesome. And Peter Davison was in an episode of it. 
that's the only way I knew who he was. Because I hadn't, of course, I hadn't watched all creatures, great and small, which a lot of people now, you know, or in the UK knew him from. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't watch that show, but on PBS, they showed ads for it a lot. So I was well aware of, of him being on that show, but I had never seen the show. So I didn't know what he was like or who his character was or anything like that. So, um, and so my real experience with the, you know, fifth doctor was literally seeing him sit up at the end of Legopolis. (laughs) That was it. (laughs) And then they rolled the credits with his picture on top of it instead of Tom's. But, you know, but it was interesting because then, you know, during the pledge drives, that's when we started watching, you know, Castrovelva and all the stories of that season. And it was interesting because, you know, Tom Baker had, you know, Adric and then he got Nyssa and Tegan then in his final episode. But it always felt like these companions were forced onto Peter Davison in a lot of ways. Or Peter Davison was forced onto them. (laughs) And it was, it was interesting. And, you know, I think Tegan and Nyssa work really well with Peter. I thought they did really well with his doctor. And the only one I thought always was never a good fit was Adric. Because I thought Adric worked better with Tom's doctor. Well, Adric is really irritating the entire season. (laughs) I mean, you know, the thing is, he's a teenage boy, you know. He's arrogant and immature. And that's actually a pretty typical teenager. Yeah, I was going to say so nothing new new there but you know when you when you see that over and over and over again it gets it just gets annoying so his character just i found his character to be really grating and actually tegan's pretty whiny too throughout mm-hmm. the whole season i mean she's just going on and on and on about how she just wants to go home not I, not that i particularly blame her but but i think she really shined in kinda which was a great great story with the snake god. Yeah. I mean, Kinda may be my favorite uh, of the season. Uh, just uh, mostly just because, yeah, it's, it's the whole possession thing where they, and she, she plays it well when, when the Mara takes her over. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I thought then I think Nissa really shined in Black Orchid because she got to play the dual roles. Sarah Sutton did. Yeah. I've only yeah. seen these episodes later uh, through the show, actually. I don't mm-hmm. think I watched any of, I've never seen any Peter Davidson other than the five doctors. That's the only one I'd seen before I started recording or station who with you guys. Um, and so every single one of these and, and seeing Castrovalva actually Legopolis and Castrovalva, uh, we, we did really early on. This was like the first, like, cause we did uh regeneration episodes uh, mm-hmm. in our first season and the first few episodes we did of our station who. So then I watched those and because at the time when this was airing, like in 82, I was big Tom Baker fan. That's how, that's who my doctor was. And when it switched over, the only reason I knew that there was a new doctor and there were doctors after Tom was because I was reading Starlog magazine. I was, I was a big fan of Starlog magazine and, 
every time I opened Starlog magazine in the eighties and I saw either Peter Davison or Colin Baker or, or Sylvester later, I was not, I was not impressed enough to want to tune back in. Uh, so um, you didn't come back to Dr. Who for quite some time. I didn't come back until Dr. Who until the Fox movie. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. So, yeah. So I didn't, I, I hadn't watched any Dr. Who from, from then to the nineties. So, or whenever that was, was it nineties? Nineties, mm-hmm. right? Two thousand. Yeah. Kind yeah. of right in there. Yeah. So yeah, my whole experience with Peter has been later, but I will say, you know, I mean, since we're talking about the Starlog as well, that magazine like was, was my guide and that was letting me know, Hey, Dr. Who's still on and there's still, you know, actors playing the doctor and everything. And uh, unfortunately I just didn't like uh, what I saw, but to be honest with you, I don't remember actually reading all the articles and really uh, diving that deep into it. I was just looked at the pictures and was like, eh, that's not the guy I like. So I just kind of tuned him out. So watching these now through the show, the, the course of the show, of course, we're not doing them in order. So there's one of this season that I've not seen, which is Four to Doomsday, but I've seen all the others, but I haven't seen them in the right order. I mean, I agree with you guys that um, uh, it's a weird sort of mix of characters on the TARDIS, and it doesn't really work that well very often. No, it's like I said, I never felt like Atric fit in, and it was kind of ironic. You know, we got Earth Shock in this season. Yeah, well, and goodbye, Edric. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought it was fascinating because we didn't know it was a Cybermen story because it wasn't Revenge of the Cybermen or, you know, something like that. It was, and the Cybermen hadn't been seen since early in Tom Baker's era because it was, was it the, basically the Ark in Space era. Yeah, and that's not even a great Cybermen story. No. Exactly. No. no, what everyone remembers from it is Patrick dying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, no, I meant the the one with Tom. No, I thought I actually enjoyed um, Urshak a ton. I actually really enjoyed that one. And... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, find, I find this whole season to be kind of mediocre. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, it's the, you know, I mean, I know technically John Nathan Turner's like begins in, in Tom, at the end of Tom's era, but to me, he really goes full John Nathan Turner, like a hundred percent when you know Tom's gone, and unfortunately, that's an era that I still have a hard time connecting with. Yeah. No, like, I can understand that. Yeah, there's constant problems with with writing and pacing and directing. There are some really bad <laughs> directing in some mm-hmm. of these episodes. Um, now, I mean, the actors are doing the best they can <laughs> with. With what they've been given for the most part. But, I mean, if I see the companion faint one more time, I mean, I swear to God, sometimes multiple times in an episode, it, it just, I mean, it got to be a little ridiculous. No. Uh, I, and and I, I, to me, it took a while for, I'm not even sure what happens this season, that where I felt like Peter Davidson was the doctor. No, it felt like the next season he became the doctor. This time you always felt like he was almost cooking the whole time. Yeah. Well, it's not, you know, the whole thing about him being the smartest guy in the room, you do not get that feeling from a lot of these episodes. He's just kind of fumbling around. And, um, you know, I, if it was, if that was only in Castor Valva in the first episode, I, I could have lived with that. But 
that would have been fine, but it just kept going on and it, it made him less interesting. You know, it just, he didn't get his, his doctor moment. What really surprised me watching these after the fact is that uh, he's really gruff. I mean, he looks like the nicest guy, um, you know, uh, outward appearance wise, but his attitude is really gruff. He's short with his companions. Uh, he seems to have very little patience for them, especially Adric. I mean, I can understand to a point, but it's just like there doesn't seem to be any connection there that's very strong. And I guess maybe Earthshock is the one that really kind of makes that really clear uh, because the other companions like really jump on him for not saving him. But uh, I mean, Adric does come back in big finish, everyone. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> He does. Sadly, he does. I mean, yes, yay, Adric. <laughs> but yeah, and it's interesting, too, because then you had the final of the season, which was Time Flight. And you had you actually had Tegan leave the TARDIS at that point, at the end of the season. Yeah, and, she finally makes it off the TARDIS. <laughs> mm-hmm, she finally makes it back to Heathrow. It's interesting. And I, was, it, I could have definitely seen the Doctor traveling with just Nyssa. And you get that a bit in the big finishes, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I think Nissa to me is an interesting character who I wish was developed a bit more. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I think she and the Doctor together were made made a good duo. Oh, very much so. Very, very much so. But often when if, if you go over two companions, when you have three companions in the TARDIS, it often is a problem, I think, because they just don't know what to do with all three of them. And so they kept... Like one of the reasons why there was so much fainting <laughs> was to get a companion <laughs> off screen, you know, because I didn't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. So they needed, you know, to just them to be away for some reason. No, that totally makes sense. And it's it was interesting because you got, you know, the three companions and we found that again, you know, multiple times in the new series when you had too many people in the TARDIS. Everyone, someone always felt left out. Either it was Mickey or... It was Rory, or a lot of times and later, it was probably Ryan with the 13th Doctor. Yeah. So it was interesting. This was, you know, and it was it was a, a new era for Doctor Who. And, you know, you had Tom for seven years before this. And those were big shoes for, you know, someone like Peter Davison to come in and fit, and fit in. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, uh, that, it's asking a lot <laughs> to follow Tom Baker. Yeah. I mean, most, I mean, most, most people today, you know, if you say Dr. Who, they're, the first thing they think of is, is Tom Baker. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true now. I mean, I think, uh, David might be the face now that people think of, but you it's, know, the generations behind us. But it's interesting because like in media, especially here in the States, if they ever have, you know, any kind of reference to Doctor Who, you always see the scarf. You always see, mm-hmm. you know, you have that in Futurama. You've had it in other series like Rick and Morty and stuff like that. And it's always Tom's Doctor. Yeah, and he shows up in the 50th anniversary. And mm-hmm. Exactly. But, you know, that also partly is because he's the oldest living, you know, Doctor now. Mm. So, and he's going strong. God bless him. So, and it's interesting because Peter also does some amazing, amazing big finish stories. And he he's actually done with all three companions. And he's also done it with just, you know, Nyssa or Nyssa and Tegan. And he's had other companions too. And so it doesn't make him more accessible. Maybe, 
but is he a good, a great doctor? It was a new era for Doctor Who. Every time there's a new doctor, it's a new era. But this was a huge jump for in 1982 because it was a brand new doctor since, what, 1974 when Tom started. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's in my favorite Big Finish, which is Spare Parts, which is a Cybermen story. Mm -hmm. And Peter Davidson's really good in that. Yep, very much so. Okay. So I definitely would recommend people watching this season if you want to, you know, check out old series Doctor Who. And, you know, it does have always, a, as a kid, you know, my childhood. So it does have a really big place in my heart. So I definitely, to the folks over at Star Podlog, I definitely, definitely would recommend it. And thank you for, of course, listening to us. And you can listen to more of this rambling over on Earth Station Who, because we talk about Doctor Who every other week, and we've been doing it for over 10 years now. So it's been tons of fun. On behalf of myself, Mike Faber, Ms. Mary Ogle, and Mr. Mike Gordon, peace. Thanks, guys. Poltergeist. In these days of multi-million dollar movie flops and rumors, and rumors of the imminent decline and fall of Hollywood, Steven Spielberg is frequently mentioned as a possible savior of the film industry. Well, that statement is so true. We know that there were a ton of movies that came out in 1982, specifically in the genre of sci-fi and fantasy, and quite a few of them flopped. It took some time for them to become cult classics, but there were a lot of financial losses. But there certainly was no loss when it came to Steven Spielberg movies. He was a well-known movie maker. I mean, one of the few, you know, directors that that was a, a, um, a household name back then, and he had so many hits. So, so yeah, he, he was definitely considered the savior. And when we look at what he did for Poltergeist, according to the credits, Spielberg co-produced the film, co-wrote the screenplay, and cooked up the original story and delegated the directing to Toby Hooper. Wow. You want to talk about someone who's virtually a one-man show? All this while producing another movie the same year, which we just previously talked about in this very podcast. So this is another Steven Spielberg classic. Poltergeist is essentially a haunted house movie, but so much more. Yeah, and this one, what some people are surprised about, was not rated R. Um, it was actually PG or PG-13. Yeah, there was no PG-13 rating at that time. Yeah, so it was just it was PG. At, yeah, it was at, like, borderline, like, you're wondering, could it have been rated R? Just because it, it was pretty scary. It was intense. Yeah, it was. And gross at times. Yes, it was. <laughs> it well, was, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, so, of course, this is the first time I heard the word poltergeist was hearing about this movie. And I, I knew it was something else I wanted to see, even though I wasn't really into into horror films. But I just thought, Steven Spielberg, well, I want to see it. Yeah, I remember kind of sort of around this time, maybe a little bit later, was the Billy Joel video of Pressure. And I felt that that was inspired by Poltergeist. Oh, interesting. I mean, every time that I saw that static on the TV, I thought about Poltergeist. Yeah, that that's something that, that the movie popularized was that static. And 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 the little girl, too, Heather O'Rourke, I mean, she became really famous after this. And then, of course, she died young. Oh, terrible. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it was kidney problems oh. because she it was something she always had. It's why she was she was so small and she had the um 
the chipmunk cheeks. It was because of health problems. Oh, wow. Terrible. And, of course, they made two other Poltergeist movies later, but those didn't measure up to the first one. And there's a Wizard of Oz connection with this movie. What's her yeah, name? yeah, Zelda, Zelda Rubenstein in this movie. She was she was in Under the Rainbow. Yeah, Under the Rainbow, the, the um, yeah, the movie about the making of Wizard of Oz. Yeah, and it had Carrie Fisher, but we don't really say much else about it. <laughs> that was a rough movie to watch. Yeah, Under the Rainbow was yeah not really funny like it was supposed to be. And Zelda Rubenstein also became famous after this movie. Like, like I know she she was a guest star on some other things. She was on that show Jennifer Slept Here. There was about a ghost. <laughs> it was it was a pretty popular comedy back then. The article goes on to say that the term poltergeist is based on the German world word poltergeist, meaning rattling ghost. Yeah, it does sound German. Oh, it also reminds me there's the the book Ghost Walker by Barbara Hambly, a Star Trek book, which Jen and I are going to review on Ladies Trek Library. And and you know, it but it does seem like a like there was all on all the TV shows there was always like one episode about ghosts, right? Like Wonder Woman had one, the Bionic Woman had one. This was of the era that people were interested in the supernatural. I remember an episode of Your Real People or That's Incredible about a haunted Toys R Us. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They people would talk about it and there was always the question do you believe in ghosts and there would always be these shows about about some supernatural sightings or something now did you see this in the movie theaters or on tv um i saw it in the theater okay i saw it on tv what was the experience like seeing it in the movie theaters it it was scary yeah it was (laughs) i mean i i just remember that um i i liked it i thought it was good and and i was i was amazed at how they did the effects it was like Everything looks so real. And having having the woman, you know, when the mother was, was um, taken, a, like, on the walls of the room and then she was on the ceiling, that was so neat. Back then, I was like, how did they do that? Of course, we know now because I've seen it before uh, about how they do that. But that it was just Spinning neat. Spinning the room around on yeah. an axis. Yes. I think what makes this different as a horror movie, that it still had something of a sci-fi element to it. It felt more sci-fi-ish than horror-ish. Maybe because it, like because it had dimension. that other, yes, the other dimension part of it. And like the the closet in the bedroom was actually a, a portal to another dimension. Exactly. So in our current rewatch, how did you think about this movie? Does it hold up to the test of time 40 years later? It, it is definitely still just as scary. Yeah, I mean, when we were watching it, I... I had forgotten how scary it was. I was like, well, <laughs> I must have put it out of my mind. I didn't remember a lot of the, the goriness in it. So, yeah, I think it, it still it still holds up as as um, a masterpiece of, of movie horrors. And, hey, it's uh, Interfleet Broadcasting. I'm New York Pete. I'm here with my best friend. Hey there. Hello. I'm the Tipsy Toaster. Hello. <laughs> Hi. What's up, Chris? Hey. Well, so we got an invitation uh, from uh, colleagues that uh, wanted us to come on uh, Star Podlog, and it's a podcast, and they do uh, reviews of Starlog magazine. Now, Chris, you remember? Did you did you get to read Starlog when you were uh, a kid? 
I'm not going to lie. I grew up in Casper, Wyoming. Uh, I saw a couple of them, but I was never able to find a bunch of them. So I read them when I could. And, uh, okay. and that was, uh, that was about it. I mean, it's, uh, it was the eighties and Wyoming is not known for its science fiction. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in uh, New York city and as soon as I discovered that Starlog as a magazine existed, uh, right from its infancy, I jumped in, I was like around, uh, I believe it was probably like issue seven or eight. And I started getting, I made it a point to actually go out and find it and uh, purchase it. And if I missed it, I'd go to a convention and pick it up. So uh, when we got a chance to uh, to review Starlog, I was like, I jumped all over. I remember I told you and we talked about it. And so we've been asked to uh, look at uh, issue number 64 of Starlog. It's November 1982, Chris. And I originally read this, not only do I own the magazine, but I actually remember reading this article when it first came out. And it's Impressions of a Soundtrack-Filled Summer by David Hirsch. And I know that you collected and listened to soundtracks, and so did I. I actually had some of these soundtracks uh, records uh, as they came out. And so we'll we'll review the uh, the article. It's a it's a great. We're article. dating ourselves now for records. Yeah, I had oh, the eight. Tra- yeah. I had the eight track of the Bee Gees. Um. <laughs> yeah, that no kidding. I mean, come on, Saturday eight Night track. Fever. Cool. Yeah. Wow. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but some of these see. are pretty good. So I, I mean, oh, these yeah. are all sci-fi uh, ones. And oh, I, I read the uh, I read the article, and and it's got some really good stuff in it. It got me thinking about my favorite soundtrack uh, from a sci-fi film, and that's got to be Flash Gordon. So I was Ooh, earlier this afternoon, one. I was dancing around listening to Flash Gordon because I had squirreled after listening to a bunch of the ones that were listed here in this article, and I got stuck on Flash Gordon. So, <laughs> Well, I, I remember the first soundtrack that I had gotten was, of course, Star Wars, and it's not it's not in the article. So let me let me read you the subheading. It's in a change of pace. One of our editors listens to this past summer's new films and some other interesting offerings. And it's it's a really good mix. It's it's not a long article. Um, it's well written. And it starts with uh, Mecco's impressions of an American werewolf in London. Which yeah, now is... this one I couldn't find very easily. It is on YouTube. Um, yes. So you can listen to some on of it on YouTube. YouTube so. Right. It's, and it's uh, it's it's pretty cool. So Me- Mecco has done a lot of different things. Uh, oh, yeah. Know, I mean, he's done the Star Trek, disco Star Trek, disco Star, Star Wars. Wars. Everybody knows the cantina, the disco. The, there's a disco cantina. Look oh, him yeah. up. Uh, uh, Miko, Miko Morado, or uh, Monardo. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty good. Or Mecco. Yeah. yeah. Or Mecco, Miko. And then, uh, yeah, so this, this, so this, the, the, the stuff he has is really good because I did listen to the Star Wars one. And the Star Trek one, of course, and those you're like, yeah, these are great. And um, I think that was, it was, I love the disco piece to it. It's, you know, oh, like yeah. a Casablanca cool. records back in the day, but it, that Did dates you... it itself too. But yeah, I love the disco beat to it. It's a oh, fun yeah. little dance thing to it. He's, uh, he's definitely, uh, he's got some great recreations or great thoughts. Oh, yeah. Recreations now, of and the then, American uh, Wolf in London. Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, in terms of uh, 
American Werewolf in London. I remember seeing it when it came out in the movie theater and it was, it was impressive. And then, so, you know, he got called in to actually, you know, work on the soundtrack and there's a lot to the soundtrack itself. Uh, the article, you know, talks about, you know, it gives, gives you just enough. So, you, you know, it goes a little bit on, I want to say the technical side, but for us looking back, it's kind of cool because where else will we get some kind of insights into the, the soundtrack, but and I don't I, I don't know if it's fair to call this a soundtrack album because the music is inspired by the movie and not really the soundtrack. So uh, but once again, it, it's 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 pretty close. It's not, yeah, it's, it's not right. Perfect. But it's Correct. got some pretty close to, you know, it's from the American Werewolf in London. I, I listened to some of the uh, YouTube pieces to it because that's the only place I can find it. Yeah, and, unfortunately. Uh, and, yeah. And, and yeah, it's you can definitely tell it's from the movie, but it don't get confused and think this is the soundtrack because it is not. It's not. It is a disco version and it's yep. I think it's better. <laughs> There's some well, soundtracks that you know, soundtracks actually lend yeah. lend themselves to a movie and, and create the the, the 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 scenes where you're you're I don't know, you're under stress or you're under something that's going on in the movie and you want them to be involved yeah. at that point. And, oh yeah. Yeah, there's no disco piece to that anywhere in America's Werewolf of London. Correct. That's, yeah, he, he's <laughs> definitely working on, you know, on a different part of uh, his brain, you know, yeah. left or right. But the, speaking of setting up, you know, a uh, a feel, you know, and and and, and put that imposing doom, the next yes. piece, the next one that's re- that's uh, reviewed is Conan the Barbarian, and I still have my copy of the soundtrack. By you, how do you have it? Oladuris. How do you have it? Is it record LP, or is it LP record? Yeah, I have a yep. record. Oh my god! <laughs> yes, so we're, good. We're dating ourselves again. This is so um, cool. Well, yeah, but listen. Yeah, now this that is, one, I, that one I just here. recently listened to because it's available. Um, oh, it's so good. Some of the songs, I should say, some of the songs are available on there, um, on uh, on Amazon, so you can actually pull up uh, Anvil of Crom. By the way, somebody was so inspired by Anvil of Crom. If you look that up, there's also a band called Anvil of Crom. <laughs> oh, it's but let me tell you something. But the, the, the soundtrack yeah, is really boom, cool. Yeah, the, oh yeah. yeah and the, Basil the, the drums, in, yeah. He did a lot of soundtracks for a lot of great movies. Oh my gosh. And then I, I looked them up because I didn't know that he actually is an uncredited uh actor in the original Star Trek which just blew my mind. So he was in three separate episodes in the background, which is just nuts. Cause this guy's like, a, he's like a famous big time A-list composer. Oh, so yeah. Conan, the barbarian, Chris stands the, the, uh, the trial of time. And back then, of course it was, you know, it was liked in, in, you know, the little, it's only, it's only given two, three, three paragraphs, you know, a quick overview of it. And it is glorious to this day. And then, it goes from, you know, the article goes from uh, movies to TV, and it's the Avengers, the original Avengers, with one of our favorites. Yes, one Patrick of our favorites. McKinney. Yeah, and now, it's iconic. Now, it's funny. You go to Amazon and look up the Avengers soundtrack. You're not yeah, going yeah, to get what you think gonna, you're going to nope. get. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. However, great stuff, and it's, it's iconic because when you hear it, if you ever watch the Avengers, you'll know that soundtrack. And it's awesome. Uh, the next uh, soundtrack is The Thing. 
Now, did you, how, how deep did you get into the thing, Chris? Meaning the show? Oh, I love the thing. Um, well, the movie. The movie, right? yeah. The movie was great. Movie, so. Yeah. So we actually, we've actually interviewed, um, help me with his name. Mr. Babison, uh, yeah. Von Babison. Von Babison, who is uh, yeah. one of the persons behind the scene. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and he talks about all the special effects he, you know, he helped do and everything else. But oh, it's the soundtrack great. on that one is on YouTube. It's phenomenal. Uh, oh yeah, and that it's one you can great. see on YouTube. I'm sure it's illegal, but it's a yeah. great, well, uh, it's a great is. soundtrack, and and it's you know, there's soundtracks that that you know just support those. Like I was saying earlier, it just supports that feeling of that part of the movie. So if you listen to the soundtrack, you're like, okay, it's yeah, you're, yeah, you're, yeah. it's not like you're gonna some soundtracks you just can't listen to because it's just like okay, this is the same beat over and over and over and over and over again. But if you watched it during the movie. It's, it, it's it's so much it's better. Important. It adds oh, yeah. to that. It adds to that scene. It adds to that feeling. That adds to you know, like start like uh, like Jaws it, with it, a dudum yeah. thing, you know. So and speaking of the feeling, right, Chris, the Road Warrior, yes, is another one that's that's mentioned in the article, and that is influenced heavily by the soundtrack. When you hear the soundtrack, you're right in that movie, right? So you know it was done right. And and then there's another classic, another one which is E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Do you yeah. remember the music no. for that when you watched it? Yeah, oh my you, God. you don't really think about it a lot until you you know you go back and listen to it. You can you know the the the, the uh, I can't do it on here, but you have that. I can hear the music in my head. Has that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, it was and it was a good soundtrack and classic. You know the right. You know the soundtrack hits when you're. You know you can imagine them riding into the sun or oh, riding into yeah. the sun, riding into the moon. Oh yeah. You you feel that soundtrack and they really reuse that during the commercials and everything else that they've yep. done with ET because it, it works, man. It oh yeah. Works. And, and the other one, right? So there's only a couple more that were given reviews, and the next one is Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. And I'll tell you, man, I went out and I purchased this. And again, I still have it because I had gotten big time at the sound, the soundtrack music stuff while I was studying or listening or whatever. I was, man, The Wrath of Khan. It was composed and conducted by James Horner. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Because it just evokes, it, it, it pulls you into the movie, but it, it puts you into this this wonderment and 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 it's affiliated with a favorite show you know star trek and and it you know they used you know the the um yeah you know, this, the themes from the original yeah I this one it. sounded a lot like yeah, i've listened to this one already and and it sounds a lot like the original stuff i don't know yeah, yeah i'm gonna be I, like the article actually mentions it's kind of just reused stuff i mean it's not I love tremendous it but if you look at his other things that he's done james horner has is a monster in the industry now. Uh, oh, yeah. He was just starting kind of out there, but we're talking The Mask of Zorro, Braveheart, Titanic. Um, these are just some of the, sh the, the uh, soundtracks he's worked on. So, yeah. Really tremendous. Well, great uh, stuff. Yeah. I mean, great stuff. And it's, uh, you know, uh, it, it shows how, how, you know, the impact and how much of it actually is out there and still exists and means something to us. And it has a, you know, it holds an impact. The last one that's reviewed is music from the 21st century. And unfortunately, it's it's near impossible to get that. Uh, uh, it's on Amazon. But, oh, it is? It's on oh, Amazon. Excellent. I listened to it oh, earlier. Oh, wow. No kidding. And uh, I think uh, they, they, they mentioned in the article that uh, it would be a great sci-fi score. I think it would be, too. 
it's it's yes. it's not boring it's 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 upbeat in some spots but it's it's got the sci-fi feel to it it's something that i would listen to in the car or something like that i would not a problem i think Tangerine you would Dream? too oh my yeah. god it's Whew. a it's a fun it's a fun soundtrack and you know it granted it's not from a movie or anything right um i think they're just you know helping plug the plug this this uh this this composer in but he did a right. really good job on it i enjoyed it so it's only like oh, five, yeah. i feel like it's only five songs on it so it's not anything major but i, I did listen to a couple of uh the tangerine dream and stuff but uh great article it's just you know in the spirit of starlog these are the type of things that you know you would pick up the magazine and you'd find these you know these articles uh most of them were timely and they they enlightened you because we didn't there was no internet and uh, I really enjoyed them because this is how you'd find out about things, you know, especially in the world of sci-fi. Starlog was it. And I remember getting these some of these uh, soundtracks. And so it it did bring me down memory lane. Uh, I enjoyed yeah. the music. Chris, I think you, oh, yeah. you probably it, it led me to look at some other right? ones like uh, uh, yeah. I looked up Brian May uh, for the Road Warrior and I didn't know he did the Imperial March. Oh, see. So see how I was cool like, wow. Oh, that's that's, that's you know that's cool. some, this person's done a lot of things and oh yeah you oh, know yeah. everybody's heard the imperial march you know the vader's oh, sure, theme man. come on so oh yeah and he's the one that wrote it i was like wow this that's is like insane. he's a rock star cool you know stuff well that's uh that's the article that's our review and um let's uh let's just thank everybody for uh giving us the opportunity and listening to you know us and the podcast itself and, uh, you know, thank everybody. And Chris, you want to give our, uh, uh, our little... Yeah, so uh, as we always say, so we're Interfleet Broadcasting. And uh, we believe that uh, uh, there's a lot of people that go behind certain things and create the fandom. Uh, people who are podcasters, people who are vidcasters, people who are writers, people who act, all create that fandom. And as we always say, fans fuel the fleet. So if you get a chance, check us out. Interfleet Broadcasting, we broadcast live every Thursday. As always, we conclude by talking about one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog magazine. This is an ad, a two-page ad for a Starlog contest. It's Wait. fun. It's challenging. Our most spectacular contest ever. Starlog's Science Fiction Celebrity Treasure Hunt. Total value $4,485. You can win any one or more. So let's talk about the prizes. The grand prize is a Mattel Intellivision Intelligent Television Home Video Entertainment Master Component plus IntelliVoice, Voice Synthesis Module, and the Tron Deadly Disc Cartridge and Blackjack Cartridge worth $400. Okay. Now, <laughs> now this is a curiosity to me because in television is being pushed aside by this point by ColecoVision and Atari Fifty Two Hundred. So it's essentially like, yeah, we got this old system laying around. Dear kid, take it. But you get Tron with it. Okay. Well, I was going to say it sounded like neat prizes, but I guess you would know. So <laughs> not. In, so you'd be in, in, impressed with the Intellivision, me not so much. How about what's the next prize? Kuwahara. The let's see, this is first prize. There's three of them. The official ET bicycle, just like the fantastic bikes ridden by Elliot and his friends in the movie, 
Well, that's something. <laughs> I remember seeing the E.T. bikes. There was in uh, Hamden, right near the Strand Theater, there was a bike shop that we would go to. It was walking distance from our house. And it was amazing because the handlebars had the pads and the the frame had pads that had E.T. logos on it. And my brother and I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. It would be just like E.T. flying near the moon, things like that. So that actually was a piece of merchandising that was smart on Universal's part. Yeah, having the bicycles. E.T. What, bicycles. You know, we still see them at cons where you can have um, your picture made with with an E.T. bicycle. Yeah, so I think that's a pretty cool one. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not like I really would have wanted that game or, or really that bicycle. I think I, I wasn't really riding my bike by the time I was reading Starlog. I mean, just glancing at it. I mean, yeah, they do have a few Star Trek prizes, so I would have wanted like those. They've got a stunning Star Trek United Federation of Planets cap. All right, so and it's a ball got, cap with a yes. UFP logo. And then they've got, so so that one was the sixth prize. Now they've got the twelfth prize, which is two Starlog $1 gift certificates plus three Star Trek Vulcan greeting stickers. Okay, that's a, that. by that point it's stupid. $1 gift certificates? <laughs> Oh, no, okay, so so what is what do you exactly do do you do for the celebrity scavenger hunt? That's okay, what I for the scavenger read. hunt because they got other prizes too. They got Star Trek books, an alien portfolio. Oh, Star Blade, Trek books, oh, Blade, Blade Runner portfolio. Okay, Giant Tron beach towel, <laughs> Star Frontiers role playing game. Okay, and albums, Creepshow album, Blade Runner album, Poltergeist and Tron albums. So some interesting prizes. Yeah, there. a variety. There's a whole variety of stuff, too. So there's a scavenger hunt in future issues of Starlog magazine where they show a picture, a corner of a, a picture, and you got to find out where in the magazine that piece of picture was found. Oh, okay. And then you send in. Like I found it was on page 62, and you send it in. They put you in the raffle. So do you remember doing that? No, I never did this. I, yeah, I don't remember that. I, I know I saw something. I think there was another Starlog issue where they hid some text in different articles, and I found the text because it would be like, it seems like it was a word and then a colon and then another word. But oh, I, okay. I, I forgot what that was, but I know that was something that Starlog did. Interesting. Yeah, I'd still be happy with these prizes. I mean, th there's a variety. So it's not like there's only one, two, or three prizes. Right. Yeah. There's there's so many listed that you even if you won some stickers or one dollar gift certificates, you're still winning something. Yeah, and they were expecting a lot of people to participate because you see how they had that twelfth prize that said they're giving a hundred of them. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty cool. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. nanu.